going on everybody hello again and welcome back to another episode of the welch report with me jean-luc welch make some noise clap it up get excited wherever you are we are back with another action-packed jam-packed episode for you today please go on ahead leave a like on the video comment your thoughts and videos on whatever the word we talk about on this show like subscribe to the channel and share the show with everybody that you know so we can build up this empire together absolutely but without further ado you know what we always do we covering boxing first and when we cover boxing it is time to step into the ring that's right ring the bell let's get it started on this opening segment of the world report round one underway talking about david benavidez absolutely demolishing demetrius Bubuantre in a fight that i got right again clap it up for me i have been on a roll when it comes to predicting these fights y'all better start paying attention i know what i'm talking about and, and this fight transpired exactly how i said it was going to transpire andre in his awkward style and his fast hands were not going to be able to save him from the monster coming his way the terminator himself in david benavidez and his ability to just seek and destroy if Andre couldn't get his respect. He wasn't going to be able to get anything out of this fight. And because he had to fight on the inside for success, eventually he was going to get caught. And after he got caught, what would be his reaction? Like I said, is what transpired. His reaction was he got bludgeoned, beat up, bruised, drained, and just outright defeated and depleted of all his energy and willingness to actively fight. He made him quit on his stool in the before the start of the seventh round. This man, David Benavidez, is indeed a bona fide monster. Because again, like we said when we talked about Andre, he was an Olympian. He was a multi-division champion. He was somebody that had been rightfully avoided by the entire division for a long time. Legitimately, again, the the fight with Canelo between David Benavidez and Canelo, or between Andrade and Canelo, that fell through. That's a little bit different. But the most of the other division, this brother wasn't being picked. He wasn't actively not being looked at by many other legitimate contenders to step into the ring and get a fight with. And so he was a real dangerous and worthy opponent for anybody in the division. And David Benavidez took the fight, made the fight, and absolutely did away with Demetrius Andre. It, be, it, was, it was reminiscent of what we saw David Benavidez do against Caleb Plant. It was almost a mirror image type of fight. First three rounds, Plant was having success. Plant was winning. Plant was landing scoring shots and was landing leather, using his speed, using angles to get points scored and find openings on David Benavidez. But when David Benavidez turned the fight on in round four and on in Caleb Plant's fight and in this David ben and in this fight with Demetrius Andre, what happened? We saw the whole tide shift. He turned the boxing fight into a brawl. He went from just trying to, or went from allowing you to, to utilize your footwork and speed and your technical ability into forcing you now to have to fight in his realm, fight in his domain. Not to mention that 
Andrade already was somebody that would have had to fight on the inside, not on the outside, in order to gain success. And that consistency of having to get on the inside in order to do your active work and staying on the inside for far too long was going to get you out of there. And it's exactly what happened. He got out of there. David Benavidez went to school and went to town on him. After round four, excuse me, after round three, once round four started, you then saw Dave Benavidez no longer try to gauge the distance or more so he found the distance at the end of round three. And in the round four, now you start to see his volume pick up, his, his pace pick up, his aggression pick up in terms of trying to get to Demetrius Andre. And what did that result in? A knockdown. Absolutely. A knockdown in round four. And from that point on, Andre, there was nothing he could do. He was wary of the power, wary of the hand speed, wary of the aggression, and wary of the fact that now whatever Andre would have thrown was going to get countered or at least traded with. And he couldn't trade with him. He can't trade with him. He wasn't going to be able to withstand the punishment that would have resulted from the risk of now throwing when David Benavidez is now implementing his own game plan. Because, again, David Benavidez for the first three rounds was, not, I'm not going to say holding back, but was more so figuring him out. Saw all the angles of footwork that Andre was doing, the awkwardness. It was giving him some trouble early, trying to get that jab and land consistently. But once rounds we came around, he started l really landing that jab, that power jab that he's got at his disposal. Now consistently touching the gloves of Andre. And then breaking through the gloves. Touching the face. Touching the chin. Consistently. Then now Benavidez said, okay, now I can work and do what I want to do. Forget your game plan. I'm implementing mine. And now I just take over. Which is exactly what he did. And Andre could not withstand the outright bludgeoning power that is, that is David Benavidez. He just couldn't. Boo-Boo couldn't take anymore. And as the rounds went on, from round four and on, after the knockdown, walloped and just thrown around. Always on a defensive, consistently backpedaling, not being able to utilize any of his forward momentum and to actually throw, because he didn't get any forward momentum after round four. Now it was consistently, you have to stay on the back foot, because your chin no longer can take it. You can't do it. The slightest touch was wobbling you everywhere. Not to mention the fact that, again, the awkwardness, like I said, the awkwardness that would get you a victory if it did result in a victory. Wouldn't be your downfall? It's exactly what happened. One of the biggest things about movers, awkward fighters, technical fighters, and people that use their feet in a great way is the fact that it can be incredibly taxing once the shoe now gets put on them. And they now are the people that have to adapt instead of you adapting to their boxing skill. And when that comes into play, now you become somebody who is both physically getting drained from all the stuff you have to do to be that technical and mentally being drained. And that's exactly what happened to Andre. He got drained physically and mentally. Not just with the body shots on the inside from David Benavidez. Not just from the infighting from David Benavidez. And not allowing Andre to actively use the clinch, either the rest or to change angles, forcing him where he wanted him to go. It was the fact that now when Andre saw, oh shoot, I got hurt, and now I got this monster coming at me, and my footwork and my awkwardness isn't working, coupled with I'm getting hit, and it's affecting me fully, 
throughout my entire body. I don't, I'm, I'm in fits. I don't know what to do. And I'm slowly but surely, more and more, losing my, the fight within my own body. That's what happened with David Benavides. The punishment of David Benavides that he brings to the body of his opponents, coupled with the mental stress of fighting a man like David Benavides, causes people to become incredibly drained. All of that wraps into, we see what happens with Demetrius Andre. By round five, this brother looked tired. Actually, excuse me, by round four, this brother already looked like he was slowing down. Punches weren't as sharp. Footwork wasn't moving nearly as quickly as it was in the first three rounds. Combination punching has slowed down. Inability to not get out the way of some shots he was able to get out the way of earlier. Was, it was, it was, he was getting caught more consistently. The overall movement speed of Andre was not the same. Everything just seemed like it was he was he was drowning in quicksand. And it's because that's what David Benavidez loves to do. That's what his whole game plan is predicated around. He will beat you up, sap you of everything that you got, similar to Earl Sprint Jr. And as the rounds go on, he opens up even more, even more, even more until the point that you just, you have to, all you can do is cover up and hope not to get knocked down. Because Benavidez, he's got enough power to knock you down, but it's not one punch power. Some people argue it could be even worse because this is a type of power that you it doesn't just put your lights out like Deontay Wilder. It's a power that it'll keep you, uh, it'll keep you awake. But with all the effects of what your body goes through, if you did get knocked out, you feel that in every shot. So it's not like you go to sleep and you're just gone. Boom. No. You feel the effects of, of what a knockout would be with you being wide awake and up on your feet. And that constant hard almost insane level of just thud thudding power consistently makes opponents just submit. And we saw it again with, a, again, in a very competent opponent in Demetrius Andre. We saw another great performance from David Benavides doing what he always does best. Seek and destroy. Bludgeon and take away. Ruin. Just ruin. Ruin him. Again, made Demetrius Andre quit. Andre said stop the fight. Andre was the one in the corner that said stop it. Stop it. He said that. Not his, his corner didn't initiate it. He was the one that said Because it. It, it, it was a losing uphill battle. And he, he had nothing left that he could do. His awkwardness was getting him countered. Couldn't fight on the inside. Consistently getting caught with hard shots both to the body and to the head, and even his best combinations amounted to nothing when it came to actually damaging David Benavides. Amounted to nothing. It was a great combination early in the rounds when he went to the body and when Andre was actively having success. You heard the pops, but you didn't. The, the Benavides kept on going forward. And then when Andre was hurt and got desperate later on in the fight, I believe in the fifth or sixth round, and then went, you know, desperation mode and threw some uppercuts and hooks that act 
that really caught David Benavidez, David Benavidez walked through him because he didn't respect his power because he knew you were done. He knew you were done. So even the best shots that landed, he just ate him and went forward. And it's insane. It's insane. Made a great fighter look bad. I had people in the restaurant that I went to to see the fight. Saying, yo, this brother's a bum. Trying to explain that, yo, this cat just wasn't prepared. What was wrong with him? He sucks. No, it's not that Andre sucks. It's that David Benavidez is just that good. He's that much above the competition. He's that dangerous of a fighter. At 168 pounds, only him and Canelo stand in the limelight of the elite of the elite. There is nobody else in the division outside of those two that has a rightful claim to say, I run the division. Currently, right now, it's Canelo in full totality. Again, the undisputed champion. Benavidez is the only man that can act that has an actual shot at taking that crown. He's the only guy. He's the only guy. When he made somebody like Andre look this bad, this weak, this detrimental, this, this, again, almost like he was drunk after round four. Just made, made, made Andre seem absolutely so many steps below him in terms of a competitive level. When Andre is legitimately a great boxer. And he figured him out just like that. While I said I, that's what I said was going to happen. And I was only off on one round when it came to my prediction. I said it was going to be knocked out in eight. And stopped either stopped early in three or knocked out late in eight. Got knocked down in four and it got stopped in seven. Six. six Before the seventh round started, he quit on the stool. While I said that was going to happen, it doesn't change the fact that it's still incredible to see when it does happen. And now we have to ask the question. That's what brings you to the next point in the show. Now, this is the only, well, it's not even a question. We have to now say it's Canelo and Benavidez, and that's it. Now, the relatively the whole division of competent, competitive boxers have been cleared out. By either Canelo or David Benavidez. Both of them. Andre, done. Plank, done. Saunders, out, retired. Trying to make a comeback, I think. There's nobody else in the division. I can go down the list. There's nobody else. Darrell, gone. There's nobody else in the division. Outside of these two that need to fight, should fight, and are worthy of fighting each other at super middleweight. 40 undisputed title. This is it. With this type of dom dominant performance, Benavidez now becomes unavoidable. He's always been, but now more unavoidable than ever before. Than ever before. There's no way that Canelo cannot fight this man. Not anymore. And from what I'm hearing, per the deal that he that that Canelo has with the PBC, it's one more fight. And then Benavidez is going to be the climax of his whole contract deal. That's it. If not next. If not next. 2024, we could see it 
Cinco de Mayo potentially. If we see Canelo fight between January and March, we could then see Benavidez fight Canelo in the last fight of Canelo's contract with the PBC on Cinco de Mayo in May, in the summertime. For one of the most highly anticipated bouts in all of history, let alone in the long, rich history and rich lineage of Mexican-style boxing. Cultures will explode, and we love to see it. We can't wait to see it. We need to see it, because this is the fight that we want to see. This is the only fight that is viable now. Both of these people's legacies are now... Benavidez's legacy is nearly getting cemented. Already has a great legacy. It's not cemented yet, but it's already a dominant legacy. Canelo's been submitted. It's been established what he is to the history of boxing. When these two clash, it's going to be a sight to behold. The question becomes who will win? That's what that now we have it's been hotly contested, hotly debated. Who in fact is going to win between these two? Who's got a shot at really? Either pulling off the upset or retaining, excuse me, being new undisputed super middleweight champion or retaining the undisputed middleweight title between Canelo and David Benavides, who in fact is going to take this fight when it does happen. And for my money, I got Canelo when they do face him. However, it's not just clear cut. It's not just cut and dry. No. This is as close to a 50-50 fight as you can get between these two boxers when you look at them in their body of work and their resume. We understand that. I'm not saying it's going to be a whitewash. I think Canelo's going to beat David Benavidez when they do step into the ring with each other, but it's predicated on win. And I say that because where's the biggest thing? And the next part of this whole segment comes to the world of boxing and Benavidez versus Canelo the issue in terms of picking a winner and who should take this fight is about timing more than anything. Not just timing inside the ring of who can catch who, but it's also timing in terms of age, wear and tear, degrading of talent. Benavidez is getting better. Canelo Alvarez is now back to at least a semblance of his peak, especially with his fully healthy hand, like we saw against him versus Jamel Charlo. We, we, this is the best we've seen Canelo look in a long time. Seemingly, he's back. Seemingly, he's better. He himself said nobody beats this version of Canelo. So by his own standard, this is the best version of Canelo that we've seen today. And the next fight we see him in, we will see the fully fleshed out best version of Canelo. Because it can only buy his metrics. It can only improve. It can only improve. Now, fully and well in a way, healed from their hand. We could have seen even better performance than we saw from against Jamel Charlo in his last fight. Understandable. Doesn't change the fact that he's still getting up there in age, both in ring and just in life. And if this fight takes place next year, 
I got Canelo in an incredibly close affair. In an incredibly entertaining fight. That I, would, that I can't wait to see. Absolutely. But if it happens later than next year, I'm not going to know who to choose. I'm really not. Because at that point, by the normal biological clock that we see boxers go through, for most instances, there's a certain point where your body just it will, it just goes under. It just can't do it. it. It it's going down. It just is, especially with the amount of fights that we've seen Canelo Alvarez in. And the more punishment that we've seen Canelo Alvarez take in his more recent fights outside of David Ben, outside of Charlo. Again, Charlo slipping, moving. He was dodging. Better defensively, everything that I wanted Canelo to do, to some extent, was there. Could have been better. But I saw more of it than I had seen him utilize in his last three fights. Like against Ryder. Like against Golovkin in his third fight. When later on in that fight, late in the rounds, he was legitimately getting pieced up by Gennady Golovkin. And against Bebo. When he got absolutely beat by Bebo. From the first round on. So this is a situation where we've seen boxers at some point in time just fall. I'm not saying that's going to be Canelo, but I am saying we have to utilize that as a real concern. We have to. And since that's the case, we're also seeing David Benavidez get better and better in his young career. Benavidez is only up and up. Canelo's on the top of the mountain. Been there for a long time. But that cliff is getting closer and closer. When the, the full drop off will happen, who knows? Again, we were saying it was happening after Bebo. We were. We were saying it was happening after Gennady Golovkin in the trilogy. But, hey, but look what happened. So I'm not saying it's just inevitable cut and dry set in stone. But it is a concern. It absolutely is a concern. It's a real thing to look out for. If this fight does not happen this next year, I might start saying that David Benavidez is going to be the guy to win the fight. I might have to. I really might have to. Because yes, Canelo is a better technical boxer. Canelo has more tools in his tool belt. Canelo is a more is a more diverse weapon. And has more avenues to do what he wants to do. Coupled with the experience and talent that he's faced over the course of his career. And what he evolved into objectively as a boxer. I feel that he's better. David Benavidez, however. Has faced off against a multitude of opponents. Similar to who Canelo has faced in his short young career. Has shown he can overcome adversity. Has shown he's got a granite chin. One of the best chins in the entire business. And has shown that he is able to render anybody's game plan null and void. Regardless of what style that he tried to throw at them. Whether it's using their speed and fighting on the outside. Whether it's using their strength and fighting on the inside. Like David Lemieux. Whether it's pot shotting. Whether it's slick style fighting like Caleb Plant. Whatever style you want to do. And whatever mentality an opponent brings to the ring, 
whatever game plan has been in his way, he's been able to render absolutely useless. He just has. Ever since he's really come into his own as a boxer, ever since he's really hit his stride, I get that he struggled early. I understand that. Got knocked down early by a jab early on in his career. But once he fully hit the clutch, popped the clutch, and evolved as a fighter, we see the David Benavidez that we see right now. We see the flaws, absolutely. But what he's done to cover them up has been phenomenal. And he showed that he is the real deal, and he showed why he is continually, continually, excuse me, being seen as one of the most dangerous figures in all of boxing. On par with Terrence Crawford, on par with Earl Spence before Crawford beat up Spence, on par with Noah anyway. In terms of, oh shoot, boogeyman type status in his division. Again, in a way, is, for my opinion, the second best pound for pound fighter in the world. Only to Terrence Crawford because of what Terrence Crawford did to Errol Spence and how highly touted Spence was when they faced off against each other. On top of the incredible achievement and on top of the ease at which he beat him, it, it, yeah, he's the best. And Noye is a very close second. Though Noye is my favorite fighter in all the boxing. And I think he will reclaim that number one pound for pound spot. In the very near future. Especially now he's got an undisputed title fight against Topolis in December. We're going to cover that fight as well. Don't go anywhere on this show. Oh, keep it locked right here. We got an episode coming for that. You better believe it. But the point still stands. In terms of a boogeyman type figure. A fear type entity. That's what David Benavidez is. Whether opponents want to admit it or not. He is indeed one of the most feared Men in all the boxing. Every person that faces him goes to the hospital. And he continues to improve and get better and better and better. Continues to up his game with every opponent. And continues to stay busy. Continues to stay uninjured. Continues to show that he's been hurt. Ever in his career, from what I can understand. Again, the knockdown was a flash knockdown. Didn't hurt him, caught him off balance. He's But hurt, hurt. I've never seen him hurt in his career. From my, from me watching him. So it's in, it's, it's a granite chin with bludgeoning like power that will beat you up, sap your energy, that's evolving with every fight, seemingly beating people with greater ease every time he steps into the ring. It's a, it's, 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 it is a recipe for real undisputed potential when it comes to facing off against Canelo Alvarez. And if this fight continues to linger on and doesn't happen in the near future, I could start saying that we see David Benavidez take this win. I really could. I just might. Because it's no longer that the experience is just outweighing what David Benavidez can bring to the table. Because if it waits too long, we can see the experience diminish in terms of Canelo Alvarez. We can see the repertoire 
still be the same, but now some of the tools may be rusted. Now, head movement may not be what it needs to be. The speed may have diminished. There's some wear on those tires just enough to lose some traction on the road, giving up precious milliseconds to the opponent, and he gets beaten in the race. And that race is, again, the fight in the ring. And it's a race against time. We've been perfectly honest for who should be favored who I got one in this way. Right now, I got Canelo in an incredibly close affair. Because it's an incredibly close fight. But if this fight does keep on lingering, it doesn't happen sooner rather than later. Sooner being next year. Sooner being Cinco de Mayo. Sooner being in May? No. I got Benavidez winning the fight. Or at minimum, it'll be up in the air for me. The only thing I'll be able to say is what both of them can bring to the table. But if time does degrade Canelo after 2024, if this fight doesn't happen next year, we are now we have to now start saying stuff's getting it's 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 getting more and more murky. First, it was a highly touted, hotly contested fight that everybody wanted to see. Then it turned into the only opponent that Canelo needs to fight right now is David Benavidez, the only worthy man. But if the fight keeps going on, that tune could change of maybe Canelo isn't the guy that needs to be favored in this fight. And maybe it needs to be David Benavidez. Right now it's Canelo. And I concur. I agree. I think Canelo is a better boxer right now. But that could change as if this fight doesn't happen next year. And David Benavidez continues to improve. And if we do see some degradation in the skill set of Canelo Alvarez, both either tactically or physically, now we get into a really interesting predicament. We may now be saying that David Benavidez is really the man that should be favored when it comes to fighting Canelo Alvarez. But now moving on from the world of boxing into the world of the NFL. That's right, we're going to talk about football on this show. We got a bunch of stuff to cover in the world of football in the world of the NFL. Starting with, my goodness, it finally happened. Frank Wright is gone. The Carolina Panthers have fired Frank Wright as their head coach after having an abysmal 1-10 start to his head coaching tenure here in North Carolina. We suck. That's my favorite team. We suck. We are terrible. We are Horrible. The Carolina Panthers are absolutely abysmal when it comes to an organized football team. And the reason why is so frustrating. And it's because we imploded our own progress from the inside out. It's terrible. But now we fired Frank Wright. We should be all good, shouldn't we? We should all be great. We should all be ready to celebrate because now we turn over a new leaf. Ain't that right? No, it's not. No, it's not. Not at all. Because we as a team, still, despite Frank Wright getting fired, we still suck across the board. 30th in passing yards on average for the entire league. 29th in rushing. 29th in points. 30th in points scored against. We are last nearly every single metric of football. Imagine. It's terrible. 
It's horrible. We can't do one thing right. Our personnel is completely wrecked, shot, done away with. We have no draft picks to actually be able to build and get other pieces, at least not in the first round. And we better hope and pray we can get some stuff in the later rounds of this draft. But we, we're, we're cooked. The Panthers are cooked. Carolina's cooked. We got one of the worst O-lines in the NFL. The team as a whole cannot get any separation from the wide receivers. Adam Thielen, respect to him, is not a number one wide receiver guy to replace who would have been our best man in DJ Moore. But we traded him to get Bryce Young, and now look what happened. Now we are where? Nowhere. Because it's a similar thing that we saw happen to other quarterbacks in the past. Similar to Dwayne Haskins, the late Dwayne Haskins. When he was on the Washington Commanders, the Redskins at that point in time. But now the Commanders. It, it was a terrible situation. Thrown into the fire. No help. No support. No real direction for the team. And he suffered for it. And he never recovered. So have other quarterbacks in the past. Never recovered. That's what Bryce Young is in, in terms of his situation in the NFL. Drafted to a team seen as their shining star, yet we have nothing to offer him to give him something to work with. We don't even have a running game. Mind you, all the years we went to the Super Bowl, all the years the Panthers have had some of their best seasons, all the years they have been a legitimately dominant threat in the entirety of the NFL, have been predicated on two things. Defense and running. John Stewart and D'Angelo Williams, Stephen Davis, way back early in the 2000s when they got to a Super Bowl the first time with Jake DeLong, Musa Muhammad, Steve Smith. Their defense, who did they have? Julius Peppers, Rucker, Morgan, Chris Gamble in the back. They had legitimately good defense, great running. 2015. Great defense led by Luke Kuechly with Thomas Davis. With uh, Was it Captain Mutterland? Was he on that team as well? And Josh Norman, who was at that point in time the best cornerback in the game. And then we had a great running game as well. Great triple threat option with Cam and I believe Stewart and Tolbert. Great. But it was... Those two facets opened up the passing game. Now we have a quarterback who can pass, at least out of college he could pass. Now he's in the NFL, he doesn't, not only does he not have time to pass, but the weapons that he has to pass too are nowhere near in any way, shape, or form worthy of being on the field. They're just the truth. They can't, they can't break away. They don't got any speed. They have no ability to really gain separation. A lot of times they drop a lot of passes. There's nothing for Bryce Young to work with. Nothing. But you know who can change that? A good head coach. Which, again, respect you, Frank Wright. He is not. He was not. It's just the truth. At least be able to mitigate change and adapt the offense to have some semblance of a working system around the pieces that you have. That's one of the biggest responsibilities of a coach. It's not just that you have a system. 
is that you work around a system that you want to put in place to bring the best out of your players. Structure with flexibility. That's what we need. That's what every team needs. And Bill Belichick, using him as an example, is a phenomenal coach. Will be a Hall of Famer. He's one of the best coaches of all time. But right now, his system that he, we have vaunted for a number of years is not working. It worked when he had the pieces. Tom Brady, Julian Edelman, Randy Moss, James White, Wes Welker, Rob Gronkowski. When he had all the great necessary pieces at his disposal, it worked sublimely. Now that he doesn't, it doesn't work at all. At all. At all. And he's not adapting it to actually fit what his QB and now personnel can actively accomplish. Hence why his legacy is to a degree. It's not in question because it's submitted, but it's now being looked at in a different lens. It just is. And when it comes to Carolina and Bryce Young, we now have an obligation if you're the head coach. Yeah, you're going to suck, understandable, but attempt to make something to give your quarterback some semblance of structure, good structure, quality structure. Not throwing a screen pass on fourth down when you're trying to win a game from 10 yards out. It No. The O-line's terrible. Defense is nowhere close to what it should have been, what it needs to be. Even with Brian Burns and others on the roster. We are not good in any totality. And Frank Wright didn't help either. This is why we needed Steve Wilkes. This is why they should have kept Steve Wilkes. This is why they should have not gone away from a coach that had gotten his players to buy into not only his play style, but adapted his play style or his scheme to fit the team. Made them a running squad. Made them a ground and pound team. Made them a team that actually took advantage of the strengths, though they were few, that they did have. And, and, in, and in his tenure, got to 6-6. Six and six, Nearly got this team to the playoffs. When we should have nowhere close to sniffed being in the running. He got us there. A coach that had the players' back. A coach whose players had his back. A coach who made players want to play beyond their means. A coach who had a locker room in the palm of his hand. That's who Steve Wilkes was. Now we see the success, the success that he's bringing to San Francisco. A great team now with an even be, with a better uh, defensive coordinator. Oh, they're sublime. They're phenomenal. They're great. That's what a good coach is. That's what Frank Wright was not. But getting rid of him is not going to solve the issue. Because the issue starts at the top. Again, this team has imploded from the inside. And it's all that, that implosion has started because of David Tepper, the owner himself. The man who wholeheartedly has ruined the franchise and has turned this team into the Knicks of the NFL. That's what the Carolina Panthers are. The Knicks of the NFL. The Knicks in New York. Prime market. 
prime real estate. Eyes on, eyes of the entire sports globe are on that city. Yet, no superstar in the NFL wants to go there. Excuse me, no superstar in the NBA wants to go there. None whatsoever when it comes to the New York Knicks. Why? Because their organization from top to bottom is in shambles. Yeah, they made some improvements. But specifically because of the deal of, of, of James Dolan. The brother who's seen as one of the worst owners in all of sports. Only rivaled by the former commander's owner. Who now, thankfully, went away. Is gone. Hopefully never to be seen again. But the point still stands. Nobody wants to go to the New York Knicks because the organization internally is an absolute dumpster fire. And James Dolan is horrible. But the market is great. Charlotte is a great market. The only problem is that our team is bad. And our team is bad, but we don't have any structure up in the higher-ups to actually have faith that the ship will be righted out. And that the problems will actually be fixed. And that's because David Tepper has been internally ruining this franchise ever since he got the team at his disposal. Ever since he bought, we should be having very high hopes if you're a Carolina fan when it comes to David Tepper because we essentially have a Steve Ballmer of the NFL. New guy coming into the league, owns the team, got a boatload of money, one of the richest owners in the entire NFL. Steve Ballmer, one of the richest owners in the entire NBA. Both of them have the capital to legitimately make moves and to make stuff happen. Now, we should be saying, oh, this could be something special. Instead, we're saying this is a man with money who's running this team to the ground. He's running this team to the ground as a whole. But it was a failed practice facility that he tried to build and then tried to get deducted for taxes. But it was the situation of what we're hearing right now that he forced the chosen number one overall pick to be Bryce Young instead of C.J. Stroud, who is now a MVP candidate in his rookie year on the Houston Texans. In his first season, on a rebuilding squad, as an opportunity to win MVP. When he already established himself this early in his, in his tenure of an NFL career. In his first season as being one of the best QBs in the league. Already. Already. All of this right now is giving us bad credence to say, nah, this is terrible. This is horrible. This is despicable. And it starts all because of David Tepper. There's one thing about David Tepper amongst anything else that encapsulates his problems. He's impatient. and He doesn't want to wait. Because he doesn't want to wait, he chooses to pull the trigger too quickly on situations. Doesn't let stuff build. Doesn't let stuff fester. Doesn't let things grow. When we had Steve Wilkes, would have been a great coach and a great roster to grow with, to build upon, to have an opportunity to really make stuff happen with. 
get it didn't transpire. All because he's too he's too impatient. He doesn't want to wait around. He said to himself, he doesn't like to lose. And that's fine. Nobody does. You want somebody who's running a team who wants to win now. It's perfectly fine. But to forego the process of making long-term success possible because you don't want to you want to win now is idiotic on the part of the owner. And we're seeing David Tepper consistently with this organization worse and worse and worse run this team to the ground. Turn this team into a laughing stock of the entire NFL. Somebody on ESPN said it best. If you want to get right game, you go and look forward to playing against Carolina. If you're in a rut and you want to get back on track, you play against Carolina. If you want to get your confidence up, you play against Carolina. You want to feel like you are you again, you go play against Carolina. We're a laughing stock of an organization. And it sucks that this is the case, but it's true. And it starts at the top and work and trickles its way down. David Tepper has been the problem. Six coaches he's gone through in under five years. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. It's insane. But it's the truth. He himself has not been and to this point hasn't shown that he has the ability to be a quality owner. If he wants to get right, get somebody else to handle everything football-wise. Because right now, with you having your hands in the cookie jar, you're breaking the bowl. You're breaking the jar. You're messing up the entire flow. You're ruining what should be an opportunity to grow and to make get back to a primed playoff team. That's what you are. That, that, that's what you're hindering if you're David Tepper. That's what you're stopping if you're David Tepper. It, and it makes no sense that this is the case. You've got, again, Bryce Young in his first year is struggling mightily, badly. We've seen this happen with QBs before. We understand. But this is to the point where he won't have the opportunity to get out of these struggles because he won't have any help to make him look good. He just won't. It's hard for me to say, that, okay, he'll grow out of this because he doesn't even have the weapons necessary to make whatever good decision that he can make fruitful because they'll either be dropped, no separation, and we'll get another situation like we see this year of nothing happening, nothing at all, nothing happening. Absolute train wreck of an organization. And it's because of David Tepper. More than anything. More than anything else. He is the one that caused this roster to be what it is right now. Hastily making moves. Hastily trying to make stuff happen now. Instead of taking a smarter route to building an organization that can win in the long term for years to come. It's all on his shoulders. Because of him, it's where Carolina is. It's why they suck. It's why we suck. And if this keeps on going up, the outcry more and more will be, hey, we might need to get this butt out of here. Potentially. But again, like we always say, only time will tell.
But with that being said, this has been another episode of the Welch Report. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you so much for listening. Again, leave a like on the video, comment, thoughts, and opinions on everything that we talked about on this show. Share the show with everybody. You know, we're available on every podcasting platform. So you can find us, watch us, share us, rate us five stars so we can get high on the uh, ethos of the podcasting world. I've been John Luke Welch. Y'all have been beautiful and wonderful. Peace and love. We are out of here. Up until next time.